Good morning, everyone. Glad you're here for the beginning of this series. We're going to talk about contradictions in the Bible and a song really that kind of deals with um, different views of God. You know, almost everything that we do in our lives and including our world where sometimes we are faced with the, the specter of religious radicalism is all about our view of God. So we're going to get into that today. Before we do, though, let's, uh, let's ask for God's help, shall we? God, what we're, what we're faced with is that so much of our world, the problems in our world, and in our own personal lives, it comes down to a deficient view of you. So I pray that today we'd be able to see you clearly. And so we're asking for your help that our minds will be spiritually enlightened. And may you speak a word to us about your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, so today we begin a series that's all about uh, something that you've had a lot of experience with if you're a parent of more than one kid, and that is contradictions. Uh, so maybe uh, tell me if you can relate to this, right? So you've got one kid, and uh, they come to you breathless, and they immediately begin to tattle on their sibling, their brother or sister, right? Johnny hit me, or sissy, you know, uh, you know stole something, or this or that. And then very quickly, like swooping into the room right after them, breathless is their brother or their sister, and coming along with a story to contradict the other story. And in this way, our children live out the Bible verse all the time. Proverbs 18, verse 17, the first to state his case seems right until another comes along to contradict him. And so this is basically the deal when you're parenting, right? Because now you've got two stories and they do not agree. They contradict. And uh, because they contradict, what can you assume? One of them is lying, right? At least one of them is lying if they contradict. Maybe, probably both of them, right? So that's what you can assume. A contradiction brings that to your mind all the time. Whenever you're faced with a contradiction, your immediate instinctual reaction is not true. And especially when the contradiction happens inside the same sentence, such as this. Let me just show you this slide. Uh, so you've got the red button is true and the blue button is false. So this is a beautiful example of self-contradiction, right? If you believe the red button, you must disbelieve it. And if the blue button is true, it is actually false, and you shouldn't believe it either. So this is an example of a self-refuting statement. Why? Because it's a contradiction. Contradictions make us think, I can't believe this. So what happens when you come up with a contradiction in the Bible? Of course, we all know that the Bible is the foundation of the Christian worldview, and so it makes us think, I can't believe this. The Christian worldview is false. A contradiction appears as evidence of falsity. And by the way, that's not a bad instinct. The idea that you would, you would assume or, or move forward from a contradiction and, and assume falseness is not a bad instinct. Contradictions do tend to indicate falseness. However, before we get into a, a, a three-week series on contradictions in the Bible, what we need to do is have a nuanced view of what a contradiction actually is and what a contradiction is not. So number one, we should understand that a discrepancy is not a contradiction. The law of non-contradiction says this, contradictory propositions cannot both be true in the same time or in the same relationship. That's the law of non-contradiction. It's like a fundamental rule of logic. If you're gonna be a reasonable person, you believe in and you rely on this law of non-contradiction. What does that mean? It means that if I say to you the Statue of Liberty is in New York and I say the Statue of Liberty is not in New York, 
those statements cannot both be true. That's a contradiction. But I want you to notice the modifier in the law. In the same time and the same relationship. Which is to say that if you have two statements that say the same thing but a different time and a different relationship, that's a discrepancy, not a contradiction. And to keep using the example, the Statue of Liberty actually, there was a time when it was not in New York. We all know that, right? There was a time when the Statue of Liberty was in Paris. That's where it was made. Only after 1886 was it in New York after it came over the ocean in parts. So it's a contradiction only if the statements mean the same time and the same relationship. I'll give you another example. I am both a father and a husband at the same time. So another contradiction, right? But I am a father in one relationship and I am a husband in a different relationship. So that means my statement is not a contradiction. It's merely a discrepancy. All right, so many things in the Bible are like that. They are discrepancies. They are not actual contradictions. And I'll give you one. And this is put forward on a bunch of skeptic blogs. And if you come across it in your own study, you're going to say, what the heck? Well, in three Gospels, we get the record of Jesus healing blind men in a city of Jericho. And we get the story in Matthew chapter 20, uh, verse 29, Mark 10, verse 46, Luke chapter 18, verse 35. And on the face of it, you think, wow, three different uh, views of the exact same story. That's, that's a lot of uh, authentication. That seems like a lot of you know, evidence for the historicity of the event. But Matthew and Mark indicate that the blind men were healed as Jesus was leaving Jericho, whereas Luke specifically suggests that the blind man was healed as the Lord came near to the city of Jericho. And some of you maybe have passed this over. You've read it a million times, but you've, you, you didn't ever pick up on the idea that Luke says it's as they enter Jericho and Matthew and Mark as they leave. Um, contradiction. But here's what we know. And this is why archaeology is so wonderful for the study of uh, the Bible. We know that there were two Jerichos in Jesus' day. There was a small little village that was built on the old site that is, you know, from the Old Testament stories. And so a few hundred people maybe lived there. And then there was uh, a much larger and newer town about two miles away, also called Jericho. So it's possible the accounts are not contradictory because they're not referring to the same Jericho. So similarly, so a contradiction or a, a discrepancy is not a contradiction. Also, a paradox is not a contradiction. A paradox is not a contradiction. So here's, here's what a paradox is. A statement that seems self-contradictory or absurd, but in reality expresses truth. That's what a paradox is. Now, Jesus used paradox all the time, right? So here's one famous example, Matthew chapter 10, verse 39. Jesus said, whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses it, his life, for my sake, will find it. Well, think about that statement on the face of it. Whoever finds his life will lose it is a flat contradiction. But does that mean that it's untrue? No, it's unbelievably beautiful and wise and true. If we cling to life, seeking after our own gusto and pleasure alone, we will eventually lose all gusto and pleasure. But if we lose those things, if we are prepared to let go of those things to seek God alone, we'll get them back in the end. It's a paradox. It doesn't mean it's not true. Paradox, not a contradiction. So also mystery is not a contradiction. 
So the truth is that many things in the Bible are a mystery to us, that, that God could be one in three, right? That there are these three personages in the Bible, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they all apparently have the attributes of divinity, and yet we're told that there is only one final cause and author of all things. So how can it be that God could be one and that we could be monotheists, and yet God could also be three? But that doesn't mean it's an automatic contradiction and evidence of falsity. It may mean that we don't have enough data to know how to resolve the mystery. And you say, well, yeah, that's very convenient, Rick, for religionists to claim mystery, you know, because religions make up a bunch of dumb stuff, and then they just, well, that's just mystery. Well, friends, it happens in the natural world, too, all the time and in science. Ask any physicist how to understand light. And the first thing that they will tell you is she will tell you a mystery. She will say, light behaves as a wave and light behaves as a particle. But that's a contradiction. It's a flat contradiction. Waves and particles are two different things entirely. Yes, but we seem to have good evidence to believe that light is both. So just because it's currently mysterious how the two could be reconciled, if we have good reasons to accept both, we're going to have to allow them to live in tension. We're just going to have to allow it, and we do. Right now, we don't understand light. And so in other words, we're going to live in the mystery of light until we know more. Well, there may be many things in the Bible that are like that. They're mysterious, in part because of a lack of knowledge, but that doesn't mean that they are inherently contradictory. So, for the next three weeks, AC3, I want you to hold these things in your mind. When you're reading what appears to be a contradiction, it may be a contradiction, or it may be a discrepancy, or it may be a paradox, or it may be a mystery. These are all live options for us when we're faced with these things. All right, so let's turn to our topic for today because we said one of our first big ones, and I actually polled the church several months ago when I was forming the series, and, and, and this is what you said. Number one is number one contradiction is, is this God of wrath, God of love. Uh, maybe you're like a Bible beginner uh, today, and if you are, you're just beginning to kind of dive into the Old Testament. You were scared of it, and you said, no, I'm going to do it. <laughs> I'm going to read that old, old book. And you started reading the Old Testament with its wars and its blood and its vengeance and you just cannot reconcile that with Jesus. Well, guess what? If that's your feeling, you are not alone with this problem. It is a very, very old problem. There was a bishop actually in the second century. This guy whose name was uh, Marcion. He was a bishop in Rome. And he was super troubled by the exact same thing. In fact, these two images of God seem so contradictory to him that they actually seemed like different gods. They almost, to his mind, seemed like opposite gods. It wasn't that they were slightly different, but that they were opposite. So this guy, Marcion, in the second century, spun out a totally new version of Christianity that said, the God of the Old Testament was real, but evil. And the universe that we live in is the shabby and decrepit work of this awful, wrathful God of the Jews. Jesus was the son of a completely different spirit, a sort of God beyond God sort of spirit. And so based on that, that assumption, uh, Marcion proceeded to cut out of the Bible every book that felt too Jewish, you know, that was too sort of tainted by Yahweh. So he cut out the whole Old Testament, that was no longer part of his Bible, and three of the four Gospels. He retained only Luke because it seemed the most Gentile of the Gospels. And uh, nothing was left of the rest of the Bible except the letters of Paul. He was a big fan of the Apostle Paul. This is Marcion, middle of the second century. 
couldn't handle the difference, the distinctions. But here's what the church did. The, the church reacted strongly to Mars' sin. They said, no, 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 no. Jesus is, uh, is said that the God revealed in the Old Testament is the same God revealed in himself. I mean, he associated himself with the God of the Jews over and over and over again. And I'll just give you one example that's most stark. John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus said, you search the scriptures, and that by that he's not talking about the New Testament, he's talking about the Old Testament God. He says, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. I'm telling you, these are the scriptures that point to me. The God of the Old Testament is pointing to me. But how is that even possible? If you read your New Testament, it says things like love your neighbor and love your enemies and turn the other cheek. And the Old Testament says eye for eye and, and, and conquer the promised land and leave no survivors. That whole thing. It's a problem. Well, there are two things to say about this apparent discrepancy about God's nature. And we'll go with, uh, over those with the rest of our time this morning. Okay, so number one. The first thing to say about this is that this actually is a superficial reading. So that when you look deeper, God's character has the same qualities all throughout the Bible. And it's a very consistent picture. In other words, when we look deeply into Christian scripture, there is much love and tenderness and compassion in the Old Testament, in the heart of God in the Old Testament, and there's a lot of judgment and justice and wrath in the New Testament. These are two different qualities of God, and they're consistently seen across the Bible. And you may be going to see, need to see some evidence of that, so let's look, shall we? Let's first of all tell you the story of Jonah. Jonah is a guy who was sent to preach to the Assyrians. This is mid-9th century B.C., before Jesus. But as you probably know, he took the scenic route through, you know, Fishtopolis, right? So he was supposed to go to Nineveh, you know, took the detour. But, but we won't get into that today. Um, now, one historian, let's first of all talk about who he was supposed to talk to, the Assyrians. One historian pretty accurately described the Assyrians as the Nazis of the ancient Near East. They thought of stuff that the Nazis never even dreamed of. They had, a, they had a method of terrorizing local populations where they'd find pregnant women and rip them open. And that would just terrorize people and they would just, wow. I mean, they would, they would fall in the face of such open hostility and brutality. Jonah is sent to this people. He's sent to their capital, the capital of Nineveh, and to tell them this message. The message is this. God hates their brutality and their sin, and he's going to wipe them out in 40 days. Well, the shocker in this story is that, is that this warmongering, violent people, from the king on down to the peasants, listen to the message of the prophet of God. They declare a nationwide fast, and they repent. The way they'd show that in the Old Testament times, by the way, is they would literally get down in the dust, and they'd grab, if they had ashes next to them or dust, they'd throw it up in the air, and they'd let it land on their heads. And that was, the, that was their way of just showing how incredibly sorry they were. And so that's what they did. From the king down to the peasant, everyone weeps in dust and ash and says, we've been horrible. And, and they, they throw dust and ashes on their head. Guess what? Because of their faith and repentance, God does not follow through on the predicted judgment on Nineveh. Now, I said this is a shocker, but guess who's not surprised? Jonah. Let's read. This is Jonah chapter 4, verse 1. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became furious. 
he prayed to the Lord, please, Lord, isn't this what I said while I was still in my own country? This is why I fled towards Tarshish in the first place. You know why I went through the fish. I knew that, I knew that you are a merciful and compassionate God, slow to become angry, rich in faithful love, and one who relents from sending disaster. And now, Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Translate, God, you are so loving and com- kind and merciful, you make me want to puke. That's, that's Jonah, okay? That's Jonah. Now, AC3, the most important part of this entire comment are two words. The most important part is, I knew. I knew. I knew this about you. Now, if the trope is true, that the Old Testament is a warmongering God of wrath alone, how is it that Jonah knew that God was merciful and compassionate and tenderhearted and forgiving and relenting of sending calamity? How did he know that? If all he knew was this, you know, Mars God of war. Who told him that? Well, it's assumed amongst the Jewish people and certainly amongst the prophetic community, this is what God is like. And it goes all the way back to Moses. There's a time when Moses has God's glory revealed to him and God speaks to Moses out of the cloud. And here's what he says. This is Exodus 34, verse six. Yahweh, the Lord, the actual Hebrew here is simply the two phrases back to back. I am, I am. It's translated here. Yahweh, the Lord. I am, I am. The God of compassion and mercy, I am slow to anger and filled with unfailing love and faithfulness. I lavish unfailing love to a thousand generations. I forgive iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And that's 500 years before Jonah. This is the God that Jonah knew. Now imagine I gave you a time machine, right? And so we all can get in this time machine and we can go back and we can, you know, get in the face of some of these prophets who have put forward this horrible vision of God and you could talk to Jonah and you could tell him, man, Jonah, first of all, cool story about the fish, you know, I'm not sure if that really happened, but you know what? The God that you tell people to believe in is all harsh and all wrath and all war and unforgiving and mean. And you know what Jonah would say to you? He'd say, huh, I wish. That's what he'd say. He'd say, I wish. I wish God was like that. But he's not. I mean, AC3, if you described his God like this, he wouldn't even know what you're talking about. I mean, he would certainly, you know, he would maybe think that, he would certainly think you hadn't read the law, that you hadn't read the prophets, that you hadn't read Moses. That's what he would assume. I mean, he'd think, well, well, I don't know, who are you talking about? Are you talking about Dagon? Are you talking about Chemosh? Are you talking about Molech? Are you talking about Baal? You know, the gods of the nations around, that sounds kind of like them. That does not sound like God. That's not the God of the Jews. That's not Yahweh. Now, he wouldn't quibble with you that Yahweh punishes the wicked with a kind of severity that makes modern people wither in the intensity of it and the hyperbolic language of the ancient Near East, which, by the way, sometimes we misunderstand some of the harshest parts of the Old Testament because of the hyperbolic language of the Middle East. Keep in mind, this is the place that gave us phrases like the mother of all battles and stuff like that. That's the way that they talked but that Yahweh was compassionate and tender and forgiven was taken for granted by Jonah and all the Jews and also for Jonah it was one of the character traits that he liked least about him but it was certainly taken as fact I'll give you another example Hosea there's a million let's go to Hosea Hosea is another prophet and God asked Hosea to take an unfaithful wife 
I mean, very often the, the prophets lived their lives in the physical world as illustrations of what was going on in the spiritual world. So God says, I want you to take a wife of unfaithfulness. In other words, a woman who's going to cheat on you and have children by other men. I want you to do that. And you say, well, why, why on earth? Why on earth? To illustrate that we are like the wife and that God is like the husband. Now, if the Old Testament God was everything that we assumed, this is where God says, okay, now, now that you've taken the wife on, on faithfulness, now I want you to dump her, I want you to abandon her because she's abandoned her wedding vows, right? I mean, that's what a God of only justice and wrath and, and anger would do, right? Well, here's what we read instead. This is Hosea chapter 2, verse 14. Therefore, I am going to persuade her, this is my people, lead her to the wilderness and speak tenderly to her, in that day, the Lord's declaration, in other words, this is certainly going to happen. In that day, Lord's declaration, you will call me my husband and you will no longer call me my Baal. Baal could mean husband or it could mean master. It was obviously a reference to the ancient God of the Canaanites. And he says, you're not going to call me like that anymore because Baal was a master, a, a harsh taskmaster, a dictator, a tyrant. No, in that day, you're going to call me my own dear husband you will no longer call me my Baal. I will take you to be my wife forever. I will take you to be my wife in righteousness, justice, love, and compassion. I mean, if you just keep going throughout the entire book of Hosea, you just be blown away. Some of you, it'll bring you to tears when you see God in a whole new way. At the end in chapter 11, verse 2, how can I give up on you, Ephraim? How can I give up on you, my children? All my compassion is stirred. This is the God of the Old Testament. There's so much compassion in the Old Testament, friends. It begs the question, is there compassion in you? Or, or could, could, could it be said of you that you are as compassionate and loving and forgiving and patient and slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love as this God? Conversely, let's move to the New Testament. Because if there's much compassion and tenderness in the Old Testament, there is also wrath in the New. And there's wrath in Jesus. That's right, I said it. There's wrath in Jesus, gentle Jesus, meek and mild. In fact, Jesus talks more about judgment than all the other apostles. He certainly talks more about hell than all the other apostles and the letters in the New Testament combined. Here's one of the many times he mentions it. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 29. Jesus says, If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And he'll say this kind of several times. He'll talk about hell throughout the Sermon on the Mount where he also talks about loving enemies and all that kind of stuff. So this is an interesting thing, right? Because people will, you know, throw out this little phrase in our culture, you know, what would Jesus, WWJD, what would Jesus do? But let's just remember, if we actually go from the example of Jesus, that making a whip and knocking over tables is one of the options, <laughs> right? Well, hey, what would Jesus do? Okay, well, among the many options are making a whip and knocking over tables. So in both Testaments, you get this consistent picture of God, and it goes like this. God is good. God is good. And because God's good, he's compassionate and just. Goodness requires both. Requires both qualities to live in the same person. So God is good, and yet people can be so not good. Not good to each other. Spouses can be not good to each other. Parents can be not good to children. Children can be not good to parents. 
Teachers can be not good to students. Students to teachers. Governments can be very, very bad to their citizens. Citizens can be very bad to their governments. And a good God cannot ignore this. Because a good God is just. And a good God has standards. And a good God understands the difference between good and bad. So a good God doesn't like just sort of look the other way when badness comes to town. And yet, at the same time, a good God knows how weak we are and a good God would want to pull even erring children back home and not impose consequence and discipline if there was another way because God's good. So this is a fascinating conundrum. How does God put this together? How are these two qualities living in the same being? God's just and He wants to justify people so they don't fall under judgment. I mean, there must be a horrible dilemma, if you can imagine a dilemma inside a perfect being. There must be a horrible dilemma inside the mind of God all the time. Paul will describe how this dilemma, if it's fair to call it that, is resolved. And it's resolved in the Christian gospel. The Christian story is the resolution of these two character traits of God. That's what our story is, fundamentally. It is a resolution of how these two character traits, God's justice and God's compassion, can live together in the same being. And it's finally resolved in Jesus. Here's what the Apostle Paul will say. This is Romans chapter 3, verse 26. Paul says, God presented Jesus to demonstrate that he would be righteous, that is to say good by being just and perfect, and declare righteous, which is to say to be good by being compassionate and merciful, the one who has faith in Jesus. And there it is in a verse. God puts the two things together in Jesus. God would be just and justify those who have faith in Jesus. AC3, understand something. God is fundamentally in the restoration business. He is not in the condemnation business. He is fundamentally in the restoration business. He is not in the condemnation business. Yet, he cannot restore those who will not repent. I say it again. He cannot restore those who will not repent. And if they will not, then they will suffer. Then they will suffer. And they will suffer. And that's like moral math. It's like saying that two plus two will never equal five. Never, never, never. God cannot restore those who will not repent. And there will be a natural consequence of judgment in this life and the life to come. Another reason for the seeming more harshness of the Old Testament than the New is frankly and ironically that the Old Testament almost always talks about judgment in this life. You know, disobey God and, you know, it won't go well with you. Pestilence, disease, you know, war, bad stuff, blood. It's all going to happen. Ooh, icky. Then you get to the New Testament and the judgment is still there. It's just going to be in the life to come. It's going to be in the life to come. In one sense, you might say that the judgment in the New Testament is much, much harsher than the judgment in the Old. But in both Testaments, if people will repent, they will find, this is the brother of the Lord now, James 5, verse 11, they will find the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. So friends, I'll just say it, there is one God, Genesis to Revelation, one consistent, non-contradictory picture of God. And this is why we keep pushing foundations so that all the followers of Jesus in our church will get the foundations of theology of the Christian faith because understanding the characteristics of our God matters. Because our gospel is in some sense merely the outplaying of God's justice 
and mercy. So we'll talk about that in the applications if you sign up for that. Now, second thing to say about the apparent contradiction between the God of wrath and God of love is this, is that if there is a different emphasis and there are different troubling things in the Old Testament passages, that is because there is progressive revelation between the covenants. So Christians have a principle that helps them make sense of their Bible because the Bible is a really big book, 175,000 words. It's a really big, big, big book. And so how do you make sense of all of it? It says lots of things and some things that seem to be contradictory. So here's a principle that helps us make sense of our book. Are you ready? It's called the principle of progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. All Christians at all times and all places have interpreted their Bible through the principle of progressive revelation. What does that mean? It means that as history marches on, God's interactions with the human race are additive. You know, one adds to the next, adds to the next, adds to the next. And that means that you do not get one gigantic big data dump about God on a Bronze Age people living 4,000 years ago. That doesn't happen. And in part because it can't happen and be successful, I don't think. I mean, you just understand people and how... Uh, the human race itself has developed over centuries. You think about it, this ancient agrarian war-mongering cultures that had as, a, as pre-existing conditions, slavery, polygamy, um, uh, uh, you know, child sacrifice, and the, all, the whole thing, right? Where life was cheap, where the life of an individual meant nothing except as you contributed to your tribe. This was the ancient world, friends, onto which God begins to reveal himself you cannot bring the sermon on the mount to those people they will not receive it they wouldn't so this leads to the principle of abrogation progressive revelation leads to a second principle principle abrogation what does that mean this is the idea that what god says last trumps what god says first what god says last builds on uh the later or the earlier but it must at times abrogate that means to say replace it and you say well again isn't that convenient no friends this isn't arbitrary and it's not evidence of contradiction any parent in the room you want the principle of abrogation to hold true are you a parent here today you've used the principle of abrogation a million times here's how it goes it goes don't listen to what i said listen to what i'm saying now right because your parent your kids will throw your words back in your face and you'll say don't listen to what I said listen to what I'm saying now go to the movie the incredibles right so here's the the scene in the airplane and they're about to crash and you got the missiles whizzing by right and you got Elastigirl and her three children are in the airplane um, and uh, or her two children are, are in the airplane and mom says to Vi Vi you have to put a force field around the airplane Violet says but you said we weren't supposed to use our powers that was the old dispensation. Mom, I know what I said. Listen to what I'm saying now. Okay, principle of abrogation. Whatever was said before has legitimacy, very complete legitimacy, but whatever is said now must take precedence because it has the advantage of clarifying the earlier message, which may have been misunderstood, mis maybe misapplied, or whose time of application is now past because conditions have changed. That's why the principle of abrogation is logical, it just makes sense, and everybody wants it to apply to their parenting, it applies to the Bible. That's what it's like with the Bible. It's why no Christian follows the Mosaic food law, some of you are gonna have pork for lunch. I noticed no bleeding lambs in the lobby this morning. Why not? 
You came to worship the Lord without your living sacrifice that you were going to kill here on an altar because of abrogation, because of abrogation. It's why we don't sacrifice animals. It's why we don't do Passover in Jerusalem. It's why we don't worship on Saturday. Wait a minute. We do worship on Saturday at AC3. All right, but you get what I'm saying. It's why we don't conquer Canaanites. Well, let's go to that, shall we? Because that is the most troubling part of the God of wrath part, right? Of the old covenant. And let's go right there. Deuteronomy chapter seven, verse one. When the Lord your God brings you into the land and you are entering to, that you are entering to possess and drives out before you many nations, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Perizzites, the Hevites, and the Jebusites, a lot of ites. Seven nations larger and stronger than you. And when the Lord your God has delivered them over to you and you have defeated them, then you must destroy them totally. Now, I have a sermon in the files, and you can go back and look at it, where we go deeply into this, and we realize that there's probably some indication that this, this command did not include non-combatants and all sorts of other mitigating factors that help you know, sort of reduce the horror of this command to conquer and leave no survivors. But let's just face it full forward uh, today. When you read that, Understand, progressive revelation helps you reconcile this with the God that Jesus revealed, the God who said, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who persecute you, that guy. And here's how you do it. Six things to keep in mind to reconcile these two. First, remember that Christ is the lens through which we read all of Scripture, right? You do not read uh, Jesus through the Old Testament, you read the Old Testament through Jesus. That's how you must do it. And so if there's ever a, a weirdness or a discrepancy you just say, Jesus is the final revelation of God. Jesus is God in human skin. And so if there's ever a worry or a wonder, you just say, this is, whatever God is, he cannot be different than I see in this man, Jesus. And so it helps to resolve some of those things. And that's why the Christians don't add to their Bible. You say, why don't Christians keep going with more revelation? Because once you've got God on the scene, the book closes. All right, so that's the first thing you remember. Second, remember, holy war these commands were not an ongoing command. Ask yourself the question, how many times did the Jews you know, go invade all the countries around them to expand their territory? The answer is never. They fought defensive wars after the land was won. So the, the command for holy war had an expiration date on it like sunset clauses on some of our laws. Now, that actually creates for an interesting comparison to Islam, and we'll talk way more about this in Extended if you stick around for that conversation uh, later this morning, because religious expansion has actually been kind of like a key part of the religion of Muhammad. And it didn't just apply to when Muhammad you know, conquered Mecca. It applied to Muslim expansion for the first, well, well forever. Um, so jihad is woven into the fabric of the faith. But you may say, well, wait a minute, I've got a Muslim neighbor who's very, very peaceful and he's kind of westernized and, and moderate and that's awesome. And you say, I've read the peaceful passages in the Quran and that's awesome and that's all there. Yes, they are. But the problem is, is that Muslims also have a principle of abrogation. Did you know that? So they've got a big Bible as well, the Quran, and it's got all sorts of wild and seemingly contradictory things, and they also have a principle of abrogation, and it also applies that the latter things trump the earlier things. The problem in radical Islam today, which by the way is still a problem all around the world, is that the peaceful passages are first, and the holy war passages are last. And we'll talk about that again in um, extended today therefore more authoritative and that is why by military conquest and not by persuasion evangelism uh, islam spread from the arabic peninsula all the way up into middle spain 
within 100 years. That's why ISIS gains converts and continues to gain converts in our world because it easily makes the case that they alone are reading the Quran correctly in the right order and coherently, unvarnished by Western softness. Now imagine, if you want to know the situation, the problem that we have, imagine if in the Bible Joshua was written last and the Sermon on the Mount was written first. If that was the case, then, you know, love your enemies and all that jazz would be set aside in favor of a later, more authoritative mandate to conquer. And as it turns out, Jesus commanding spreading the faith by force never happened. However, Muhammad did, in fact, repeatedly, and much more importantly, it was the last thing he said, not the first thing he said, okay? Remember that. Holy war, not an ongoing command. It's never been a woven part of the Christian worldview. Third, remember... Canaanite sin was enormous, and we, we tend to forget it, you know, we just think about it in terms of, you know, all those horribly innocent people just standing there doing nothing, and the Jews came and killed them all. Remember, Canaanite sin was just off the charts. I mean, adultery, incest, sodomy, bestiality, infanticide, they killed their babies. I mean, that's like the, the coup de gras. Fourth, let's remember that God actually had been patiently waiting for them, so despite all these horrendous horrific abuses like Nineveh God sitting there saying I'm ready for a violent people to turn and just come to me and I will have mercy on them for 450 years it never happened and so judgment came fifth remember that this is judgment this is judgment not ethnic cleansing some people will tell you that, that this is ethnic cleansing or they'll use the word genocide it's not genocide and it's not ethnic cleansing God plays no favorites I'll tell you why because when the Jews did the exact same things, including killing their own babies, God kicked them out of the land. So God plays no favorites. Six, remember, and finally, that in the ancient Near East, if the Jews had endeavored to coexist, they would have themselves been exterminated because that's how it works in the ancient Near East. It was kill or be killed. Life was cheap. Whole tribes will be wiped out. This is not a problem in the ancient Near East. In fact, it's one of the reasons why you don't have Hittite neighbors. Anybody got a Jebusite neighbor? I mean, uh, you know, uh, how about, uh, you know, the, the Arameans or, you know, the Philistines? You know, we, these, these people groups didn't make it out of the ancient Near East. So the largest priority in terms of larger kingdom aims is the survival of Israel. Israel's task, remember, through Abraham was to bless the world. God loves the nations. God loves all the nations and wants to bless them. And that will only happen through Messiah and Messiah will teach us to love our enemies. But none of that will happen unless there's a nation around to bring him in. Number one priority, Israel must survive. So even the harshest wrath parts of the Bible, friends, I think we have reason to see the just or the mercy of God just bleeding through. So here's a question as we wrap up today. Can you accept that a just God disciplines those he loves? Can you put these two things together in the same God who loves you and who is good all the time? That two qualities can exist simultaneously in God. Or do you have your God in a box like we heard earlier? Is your God in this little box and he's either in the compassion box or he's in the mean angry box, but he can't be in both boxes. Or just like let's all the better, let's just get him out of the boxes. Let's just get him out of all the boxes. Can your God get out of the box? Maybe, friends, justice hits you hard and you're gonna have two reactions. God is in that, you know, God hates me and now God's in that box, you know. Bad things are happening right now. God must not love me. Or 
bad things are happening now. God would never discipline me. <laughs> I mean, because God's too loving and kind. He would, never, he would never call out something in me that was wicked. What? Is your God in a box? It's time to let God out of the box. And maybe there's another reaction to all these. That a God of justice could be drawing you to his mercy. They're, they're, that, that's how you could put it all together. These two things are not contradictory, AC3. But I'll tell you what is. Here's a self-refuting thing. Here's a contradictory thing, and I see it in the lives of a lot of Jesus followers. And again, it goes back to our vision of God, what God is like. It's a, it's, a, it's a contradictory statement that actually was first spoken by Peter one time to Jesus. And it's recorded for us in Acts chapter 10, verse 14. And here's the phrase. Are you ready? It's self-refuting. He said to Jesus, not so, Lord. Not so, Master. And if you're a follower of Jesus here, friends, that's a self-refuting statement. And you cannot make it without reducing your entire spiritual life to absurdity. You say, well, how does that work? Well, friends, you can have one or the other. You can say not so, and then you give up the right to call him master. Or you can say master, and you give up the right to say not so. Let's pray. Now, God, I ask that we would have this wonderful, beautiful, amazing, awesome picture of you in our minds, fixed in our minds with all this wonderful, beautiful, terrifying, awesome, alluring traits that you have that we see in the Word, and most specifically in the Word made flesh. And so God, draw us to yourself, and may you draw a lost world to yourself through us who see you more and more as you are, as we come nearer and nearer to Jesus. Make it so, I pray, in his name. Amen.